Warning, the Federal Communications Commission requires that we inform you that this episode of the Derek Duvall Show may contain content inappropriate for children. Listener discretion is advised. The FCC also requires us to inform you that this episode may contain the words f***, s***, asshole, mother boy, dumpster, galloping quit, but in like a British way, and also, strangely, cul-de-sac. Once again, this show may contain content not suitable for anyone but the coolest children. Listener discretion is advised. Powered by Transistor FM. Welcome to friends, foes, and neither. Do not adjust your podcatcher settings, because what you're about to hear is real. It's the Derek Duvall Show! Prepare yourself for pop culture, commentary, and interviews featuring no drama and no controversy, guaranteed. And now, coming to you live to tape from the Derek Duvall Productions Bunker, it's Derek Duvall! Hello, Duvall Nation. Hello. Hi, everybody. Hey, thank you so much. Wow. What a response. Thank you. Please sit. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Hello, Duvall Nation, and welcome to the Derek Duvall Show. That's right. We are back with another fantastic journey into the lives of extraordinary people. Before we get into the episode, I want to say thanks again to my last guest, Jessica Brody. What an absolute breath of fresh air she was, and I'm so glad I was able to connect with her. I hope everyone had a chance to go and check out her books. If you follow her Instagram, she's got some really, really big stuff going on right now, so be sure to check her out. If you haven't done it already, listen to the episode after you're done with this one. So welcome to episode 88. We have a very unique guest today. We have on the show... Brent Magnuson, a former Army veteran who is now a celebrated author and motivational speaker. He gives his unique perspective on life, gives suggestions on how to live a more active and fuller life. Plus, he talks about working with veterans. And guys, this guy's a badass in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, and he's written a best-selling book, Roger Up, the mission-ready blueprint to crush the morning, own the day, and become the best version of you. This is the no holds bar interview, so let's just go ahead and get him on out of here. Duval Nation, please rise to your feet and welcome all the way from the Windy City, Chicago, Illinois, U.S. Army veteran, motivational speaker, and author, Brent Magnuson. Brent, hello. Welcome to the show. How was the weather been out by you today? Weather's good. Had a little bit of rain, but it's a typical sticky, hot summer day here in Chicago. Life is good, man. Chicago, huh? Yes, sir. Bears fan? Not to upset any Chicago viewers, but as a lifelong Chicago suburbs resident, I'm actually a diehard Packer fan. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. I don't even know how to proceed with this interview after that. No, I'm just kidding. Well, I didn't know you were going to come out the gate with the most <laughs> controversial thing about me. Uh, yeah. That's as bad as it gets with me. So Fair enough. So I start my interviews off with the same question. Is, how has it been for you to navigate the COVID-19 world we're living in? Uh, it, it was okay for me. I had COVID uh, twice and I didn't have it very bad at all. Um, I was very fortunate, mild symptoms. And uh, yeah, I, I don't really talk about the whole COVID thing too much. You get into the whole vaccine yeah, yeah. thing. And, yeah. Fair enough. Every journey has a beginning. Where were you born? What was it like to grow up there? I was born in Oprah Terrace, which is about a suburb about 20 minutes outside of Chicago. 
middle class at best, blue collar sound. And uh, I had the best upbringing ever. I had the two best parents a guy could ask for. I was adopted at birth. My parents tried to have kids for seven years. They couldn't. They adopted me. On the way home from the hospital, they got a flat tire. Apparently, I've been a jinx ever since. We just talked about this at my dad's 80th birthday party last weekend. Yeah, I was blessed two years later to get a younger brother. And we just had the best childhood growing up, you know, shooting BB guns and building forts, riding bikes, skateboarding, martial arts, wrestling, soccer. That was life for me. After high school, I knew the military was going to happen. The vast majority of the men in my family had served. I wanted to get a gun and go do some good forgotten country. And I got to do just that. That was my childhood. I was maybe a C student. Sports and girls were far more interesting to me than academics. I think I made up for it because I've read a lot of books, the same books that they try to teach in school. So I feel like I broke even educationally, but socially I feel like I excelled and got to meet a lot of great and interesting people. You mentioned it earlier. Just uh, what was the main appeal of the Army over the other branches? Just to talk that one of my uncles, who was a Vietnam veteran, said, he said, it's hard to ask for anything from this country when you become an adult if you haven't given anything to this country. I don't know if that was the exact phrasing of the conversation, which was about 25 years ago, but I certainly read it loud and clear. And uh, he was very proud of his service. My dad, an Air Force veteran, proud of his service. And again, the vast majority of the men in my family had served. And the, the whole idea was consistently that it was the right thing to do that, you know, before you ask for all these things from your country, give something to it. And I bought it hook, line, hook, line, and sinker. The recruiters didn't have to come to me. I called them. I said, I'll be, I'll be down in a half an hour and bring my dad with me just to make sure I don't get bamboozled. And uh, yeah, it, it went very smooth. And six weeks later, I was at basic training at Fort Knox, Kentucky. What was your MOS? I was a 12, I ended up being a 12 Bravo. I was a combat engineer. Nice. How many deployments you participated in? Uh, my first deployment was to Bosnia in 1998. We did Kosovo in 1999. And then just prior to 9-11, about nine months before that, I got injured, uh, broke my back. I was medically discharged. And then about three and a half, call it three and a half, almost four years later, I was fortunate to get back in the in the fight, the, uh, the GWAT, Global War on Terror. And I was able to do some contracting for a few years. And now I'm still able to contribute at 46, still doing executive protection, working primarily with royal families, foreign dignitaries, and high net worth people, both in an unarmed and armed capacity. So uh, you said you did uh, royal protection work. Is that pretty much what the job was after you became a civilian? Uh, that's what I do now still currently, even though I'm entrepreneurial and I have the book and obviously the big Roger Up event coming up September 1st in Chicago here. Yeah, the last few years I've been doing uh, at, a, at a pretty high level, executive protection or personal protection. Royal, right. more specifically, I don't do anything in the celebrity world. Royal families, more specifically from the United Arab Emirates and um, high net worth people and foreign diplomats is, is right. the main uh, niche that I work in. What appeals to you the most about Brazilian jiu-jitsu? Because I read that and I was very fascinated. What appeals to me the most about Brazilian jiu-jitsu is that I... 1000% believe it is a legitimate superpower. And when my eight-year-old nephew a few years ago asked me, or seven years old, as seven-year-olds do, Uncle Brent, do you have a superpower? Instead of lying to him and saying, yes, I can fly, or yes, I can predict the future, I looked him square in his eyes and said, Carter, I do. It's called Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, and your journey will start soon. And I believe oh. that 
a hundred thousand percent. How long have you been doing it? I've been training for since 08. So, uh, 12 years, 12 years, uh, 12, nice. 14 years. So do you go to like competitions or just something? It's like a private thing for yourself. Yeah, I have competed. I've competed in the Pan Ams. I've competed in the world championships. Uh, I did an amateur MMA fight in 2010 just to, you know, see the effectiveness of that Brazilian Jiu Jitsu in an actual fight and I, and some other smaller events, Grappler's Quest and, and Naga. Um, but I haven't competed uh, probably in the last six years just because I've, had some surgeries that I had been putting off for a long time. I had to get both shoulders done, got my nose done. And yeah, so I haven't competed, but I think in the next year or so, I will uh, hopefully uh, be able to get back into that. COVID really put a damper on things. If they want you wearing masks and being six feet apart from each other, it's hard to go and roll around with another grown man in your pajamas in an auditorium full of people. So <laughs> jujitsu wasn't exactly COVID friendly. I understand. So let's talk about your book, Roger Up, The Mission Ready Blueprint to Crush the Morning, Own the Day, and Become the Best Version of You. Where did the idea come from to write it? So 1997, I'm a new guy in Germany at my first unit, and we trained a lot. We spent a lot of time in the field, and my unit was very big on ruck marches. So we would do four or five 12-mile ruck marches a year. They were timed. It was competitive. Everything was competitive. And just being in a sea of alpha males, I, I thrived on it. I loved that competition. And I was never the best, but I was fought to at least try and hang with the guys that were the best. And a few weeks prior, we had done a 12-mile ruck march, and it went well. It was timed. I crushed it. But now, a few weeks later, I was on an 18-mile ruck. I had 35 pounds on my back. And now I am the new 60 gunner for our platoon, which is the M60 machine gun. It's about 22, 23 pounds without ammo. And I'm carrying that pig uh, around for 18 miles. And about eight, mile 14, I broke down and I quit for the first time in my life. Never happened in soccer, never happened in wrestling, never happened in martial arts. I found my breaking point. Couldn't feel my arms. I knew my blisters on my feet were all bloody. I didn't want to take my boots off completely smoked and I just dropped to both knees and I just surrendered. I was done. I quit. And my platoon sergeant at the time, Sergeant Scully, who had this amazing ability to just appear conveniently, came up to me and he said, what's up, man? I said, Sergeant, I'm smoked. I'm done. I got nothing left. Uh, I'm not going to do the last four miles. And he looked at me and he said, Mag Maggie, you need to Roger the fuck up. You're a new guy here. You got four miles left. Everyone is looking at you right now. Stay focused on me. If all these guys cannot trust you to finish an 18-mile walk, and that's all this is, it's just a stroll, how the fuck are they going to trust you downrange? And I had never been talked to like that before. And it was one of the most pivotal moments in my life. And not only did he inspire me, but it was the first time I saw leadership at the highest level because not only was he leading from the front, but he then decided to lead by example and walked those last four miles with me, constantly reinforcing that to where I actually jogged, a very slow jog, but jogged the last mile of that ruck. I took the next two days and rested my feet and slept a lot. And ever since then, that 
term Roger up has been ingrained on my brain. And it has been the mantra I have had to go to time and time again when I've had tough times or, or struggles or whatever. And the whole idea is to be able to push that out there. You know, everyone's got their own saying, embrace the suck, man up, woman up. You see all the t-shirts. I'm wearing one of my own right now. But at the end of the day, I think we all need someone like that in our life. And I hope this book for some people is that Sergeant Scully that tells you it's time to Roger up and you have a lot more left in the gas tank. Your body has more. You just broke mentally. And I'd never broke mentally before. And the fact that he checked me like that and the fact that he put that ownership on me to not fail in front of all those guys because they would not have trusted me downrange. It was one of the most pivotal moments in my life. And I, and I love the fact that I can still talk about it 24 years later. That's awesome. That's, that's a very inspiring story. No bullshit. That's really good. So, Thank you. What has been the uh, reception to the book been like? The reception of the book's been great. Yeah, it's 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 been great. We've we've had, you know, fantastic reviews. It's got, you know, five stars and life is good. I mean, we'd like to sell more books. We'd like to be on the New York Times bestseller list. Uh, if Oprah was still around, I'm sure I'd like to go on Oprah and talk about her, my book and be in the book club. But um, yeah, I'm happy where it, where it's where it's at and, and how how well it's sold. I'm I'm more than happy that Jason Redman uh, a, a fantastic veteran, a retired SEAL of 21 years, was was fortunate. I was fortunate enough to have him write the forward to the book, and that certainly helped with sales. Uh, Jay has two books. He's a New York Times bestselling author twice over, and the reception's been great. And it's, uh, But in all honesty, the book was really written for two reasons. One, it was written to hopefully help someone that had, you know, either gone through some bad times or was potentially going to make some of the mistakes that I've made in life. So it was really written for like the 20 year old knucklehead me. Um, I wish I had that book when I was 20 because I probably wouldn't have made as many mistakes, right. but it was also written because I wanted something tangible to help further my speaking career and a book kind of lends credibility, especially if it sells well and, and gets good reviews. So there was that selfish aspect of it and that I wanted to further my speaking career and eventually be able to put on an event like this. But the the main primary focus was to just put the info out there and, and hope people gobbled it out. Nice. So I want to ask you a couple of interesting questions. Uh, talk to us about leveling up our circle of influence. I'm obsessed with circle of influence. So I'll make this story as quick as I can. I don't know if it's as good as the Roger Up story, but it's pretty cool. <laughs> so... 2009, I had never heard the term circle of influence. 2009, I was living in Las Vegas. I just finished up my contracting career maybe a year prior. I'm now fully a civilian. I'm out in Las Vegas living with a girl, and I'm now in corporate America. I had taken a sales and consulting job I was tremendously underqualified for, but because I was a black belt in bullshitting, and I consistently throughout the interview reiterated that I was a veteran, uh, they hired me. And in that, I noticed in corporate America, which was brand new to me, I noticed that the, the same people hung out with the people that they were hanging out with were getting the same results. And even though I didn't like personality wise, the people that were making the most money, I started hanging around with them and my income grew and the number of sales I got grew. And 2009 came along. I lost my mom to cancer. 
I flew back to Las Vegas after we buried her. After 118 years in business, my company filed corporate bankruptcy. And the chick I was living with at the time was, let's just say, not as honest as she should have been. So essentially in a three-week period, I lost my mom, I lost my job, and I lost my chick. I didn't really care about the chick, but the other two were pretty important. So that actually sent me kind of spiraling. I had a lot of stuff bottled up like a lot of veterans do. I started hitting the bottle more than I should. I started paying less attention to my physical fitness, my mental health, and really spiraled. And one night, I was up late, couldn't sleep, two in the morning, Tony Robbins comes on TV. And I don't know what compelled me to do it, but I bought the whole lot. A few days later, the DVDs and the CDs show up, and I went all in. I mean, all in like I did in the Army. I was drinking the Kool-Aid by the bucket. Fast forward about a year later, I got back on track, hired a coach, hired a nutritionist, lost a shit ton of weight, went from 230 pounds to 175 pounds, did my first MMA fight, did that all in four months. And it was in Las Vegas. And about a month before the fight, I was training at two gyms. One of those gyms was the Tap Out Training Center. And that day at that gym was former UFC light heavyweight champion Chuck Liddell, who like Andre Agassi, Oprah, Mother Teresa, Nelson Mandela, and Bill Clinton before him, hired Tony Robbins to be his mental coach in preparation for his fight against Vanderlei Silva. As I'm walking out of the gym, and flirting with the attractive young lady at the front desk and buying my 70th pair of hand wraps, which I did not need. It was more of an excuse to talk to her. In walks Tony Robbins, all six foot eight, everything you would expect, the guy from Shallow Hell, and I'm floored. And I am usually not starstruck or intimidated around grown men. And I was literally starstruck. And the owner of that gym, about a month prior to meeting Tony, I had given him all the CDs and DVDs and he gobbled them up just like I did. So he walks up to Tony Robbins and says, Tony, my name is so-and-so. I'm one of the owners here at the Tap Out Training Center. I just want to let you know, I have all your CDs and DVDs and it's all real and it's helping my personal life and it's helping my business. And he points to me and he says, this guy gave them to me and he won't shut up about you. And in front of about 15, 16 people, Tony Robbins looks right at me and goes, so you're the guy giving all my shit away for free. <laughs> Everyone has a nice laugh. I'm again, just stunned that I'm even in this situation. And he puts out his hand. He's got these big paws. It's like shaking hand with a grizzly bear. And he was so, so generous with his time. He shook hands, signed a couple autographs. And as he was going in to work with Chuck, which was a, a private session, they shut the entire gym down just for Tony, his very small team, and Chuck. He stopped and pulled me off to the right. And for about three minutes, we talked. And it was probably the most important three-minute conversation I've ever had in my life. And essentially what he said, the premise of what he said was, invest in the people around you, not your family, the, the people you spend the most time with, invest in them, go all in, and the ROI will be 10 or 100 times over. And it was just so impactful what he said. And he mentioned circle of influence. And I had never heard that term before. And ever since then, I have been very conscious and very cognizant of who I surround myself with. And I remember him specifically saying, you never want to be the smartest guy in the room. And I remember him specifically telling me he 
makes it a habit to never be the smartest guy in the room. And here's the guy that's partially responsible for saving my life and dragging me out of what I looked at as the Mariana Trench, the deepest place on earth where there's no light, there's no life. That guy dragged me out of there. I had to take the action and do what he said on those DVDs and CDs, but I will always forever be indebted to him and what he's done for so many amazing people. Um, and it, it was just such a powerful turning point in my life. And I've certainly had failures since then, and I've had struggles since then, but I've always had that in the back of my head and, and circle of influence has become such an important thing to me. And I think very few of us take a real serious look at the five people besides our family that we do surround ourselves with. And do they want us to be successful? Do they want to celebrate our wins? Or every time we start leveling up and doing better at work or doing better socially, are they trying to drag us down? And for me, like a basketball team, I want five Michael Jordans on my team. I know I'm not going to get that, but I'm consistently and constantly trying to make my circle of influence as strong as possible. And I, any chance I get, I encourage people to do the same because it's probably one of the most beneficial things we can do as humans. Okay, Duval Nation, we're going to go ahead and take a small break, but we'll be right back with the conclusion of this amazing interview. Drop down and give me 20 push-ups right now on your knuckles. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Mez, does she take this time to refresh that cup of coffee, take some super nice long deep breaths, you know, Cluzo style? Pay attention to two friends of my show, and we will be right back. This is B-Word, one half of the host of the Bleach Brothers podcast. My buddy Jake the Hater, Jake the Tailgater, joins me every single week on Sundays to cover things like dadisms, food and beverage, and all things entertainment. And just like Sunday church, when you get out, you can come and enjoy all the dirty talk and get sanitized. Teachers, do you ever have these feelings or have been told these things? Do you want Kleenex for your classroom? Maybe you should think about buying your own, with your own money. You get the summer off, you can have a second job. Do you really need a pay raise? Oh, do you need to use the restroom? Maybe you can do that in the three minutes while students are changing classes. Boy, sure hope your room doesn't descend into Lord of the Flies in that time. Oh, things are going pretty good for one. Surprise! Budget cuts. Well, you're in luck because we've got a book just for you. Hi, everyone. It's Katie Kinder, educator, speaker, and author of Untold Teaching Truths. I invite you to purchase my book and join this journey as we talk about the wild world of public education. Part memoir, part strategy. It is available on BookBaby, Amazon, or wherever books are sold. Teach on Warriors. We've got this. In today's story, Elena tried taking a magic potion which she thought would help her. Well, she found out there aren't any magic potions. And you know what? There aren't any magic drugs either. Anytime you take one from anybody but your parents or your doctor, you're taking a very big chance. You're gambling with your health, maybe even your life. Drugs don't make your problems go away. They just create more. What if I told you about a group of elite college athletes who compete in 35 different sports at one of the toughest institutions in the nation? For them, it's not about name, image, and licensing or any other kind of major endorsement deal. Because at the end of the day, their ultimate goal is to serve their country. This is Carl Darden. 
I'm the host of Navy Sports Central, and I'm talking about the athletes who attend the United States Naval Academy. These young men and women represent the best our country has to offer. They compete at a high level on both the national and world stage, and their stories have mostly gone untold. I'm here to change all of that. So please, join me, Carl Darden, on Navy Sports Central, wherever you get your podcasts to learn more about these incredible athletes and our nation's future leaders. Janae Sergio, arriving. Hello, everyone. This is Janae Sergio, life coach, combat veteran, and best-selling author. I invite you to purchase my new book, Perfectly Flawed, A Veteran's Journey from Homeless to Hero. In these pages, you will learn about the lowest struggles of my life to the absolute triumphs that have made me the strong woman I am today. Follow along as I talk about homelessness, my naval role in Operation Enduring Freedom, navigating insurmountable odds, and how I dealt with and overcame them. You can find Perfectly Flawed on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or wherever books are sold. Welcome back to episode 88 of the Derek Duvall Show. Let's get right back to it with the conclusion of our interview with motivational speaker, U.S. Army veteran and author of the book, Roger Up, the mission-ready blueprint to crush the morning on the day and become the best version of you, Brent Magnuson. So I want to ask you to explain the sheep-wolf, sheep-dog way of life. So I will give credit where credit is due. I first learned these exact terms from retired Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman, who wrote a fantastic book called On Combat. And essentially how he breaks down society is 80% of our society are sheep. Sheep like eating grass. Sheep like just doing what they're told to do. They follow the leader. They follow the mainstream media. They're told what to do. They don't want any confrontation. They don't want to get eaten by the big bad wolf, which is the other 10% of the population. And then the other 10% of the population are the sheepdogs. Now the wolves are the serial killers and the, and the rapists and the murderers and the kidnappers and maybe some of our politicians and maybe some of big pharma and we'll stop there. But the sheepdogs are the protectors. The sheepdogs are the ones that the sheep want there. And there's a very interesting dynamic that happens with the sheep and the sheepdog. When the wolf doesn't come around for a while, the sheepdog actually start resenting, the, the sheep actually start resenting the sheepdog because it actually looks like the wolf. It has fangs, it's built the same, but when that big scary wolf comes back, they more than ever need that sheepdog. I feel like right now, we live here in the United States in, in, a, in a very woke culture that embraces and promotes more sheep. It has less consequences for the wolf, and it actually is against sheepdogs. And I actually think we need more sheepdogs because the wolves keep getting more and more scary because there are less consequences for them. And the sheep are always going to be sheep. If your parents were sheep, there's a very good chance you're a sheep and there's a very good chance your kids are going to be sheep. So I'm just calling for more sheepdogs. And uh, I don't think that's too much to ask. So uh, one interesting question I have to ask is as an old Navy veteran, I can tell you all about cold showers. I'm sure you can too. Uh, I hear you have a very interesting way of explaining how cold showers can really work for you. Yeah, I believe in cold showers like I believe in capitalism. And I'm all in on capitalism. Uh, cold showers, and I have to add one caveat. If you are a retired or former SEAL or special operator that was forced to be tortured 
if you will, or exercised in very cold water, you get a pass. For everyone else, there are tremendous benefits to cold showers, from stimulating blood flow to actually waking you up and shocking your system, to rejuvenating cells, to helping with healing and swelling and all these other things, inflammation. But for me, getting up in the morning and hitting that cold shower, it does one thing. It sets the tone for the rest of your day and it shocks your system into no matter what, you are now fully alert, fully awake and operating on all cylinders and it's go time. And that's not easy to do. And it's not easy to do in a place like this in Chicago in December when it's 12 below and you're still under those warm covers with a pretty gal or a handsome guy next to you. Getting up and taking a cold shower is the last thing on your list, but it builds discipline, it builds consistency, and it genuinely and definitely benefits you physically. So I want to ask you how you came to be on the board for the Resilient Warrior Foundation. Yeah, so a fantastic friend of mine named Matt Davidson, who's an Air Force veteran. A few years back, we got our purple belts in jiu-jitsu together, and he had started this foundation. He said, Brent, I know you're very active in the jiu-jitsu community, and you're even more active in the veteran community. I want you to come on board and help us get the word out to more veterans. We, we understand what jiu-jitsu has done for us, and we need to get that out to the masses. And what we do is for veterans and first responders that suffer from PTS or PTSD that they've acquired in their service to this amazing country, we pay for their jiu-jitsu at any academy in the United States. And um, all we ask is that they train once or twice a week, stay accountable, and reap the rewards and benefits that jiu-jitsu has. And just very quickly, if your listening audience is wondering why jiu-jitsu would be beneficial to a veteran with PTSD, maybe someone would think they need medication, which the VA is fantastic at throwing enough pills at you to kill two rhinoceroses. Right. Or maybe there's other things that would help, like therapy or a psychiatrist or a psychologist. And maybe some of those things work, but specifically what jiu-jitsu does for the veteran, especially based on how long you've been out. Because the transition, the military does an amazing job of training us up. But once we're out, they still have a tremendous amount of work to do when it comes to helping us retransition. And the longer you've been in, the more combat you've seen, the more bad things you've seen, the more difficult that transition is. Because now you don't have anyone telling you where to be. I think the VA's go-to, and this is by no means me throwing the VA under the bus. This is me as an individual just being honest based on personal experience and based on experience from dozens and dozens of close personal friends, not to mention just random veterans that I've met over the years. The VA does a fantastic job of getting you in. And the second you go to mental health, 90 plus percent of those veterans within week one have medication. And then it builds. And then you need meds to sleep. And then you need meds to wake up. And then you need meds for pain. And then when you get addicted to those pain pills, you need meds to come off those pain pills. And then you're on SSRIs. And then you're on, and the next thing you know, it's been a year and a half and you're on eight medications and you're all jacked up and you're actually worse than you were before that. Some of the things that the VA can start doing immediately is taking a more verbal approach to help from a psychological perspective, meaning trying to use some of the fantastic breakthroughs they've had in therapy and not specifically with a psychiatrist because psychiatrists have prescription pads and they're very good at writing them off. 
psychologists and social workers don't. So they're forced to communicate and they're forced to get inside your head and find out what's really going on. It's difficult to do that when your first go-to play is just to throw pills at someone because those pills don't work for, for everyone. They may work for some people, but a lot of people need the verbal side of it as well. And maybe some people need both. Another thing that veterans need, especially as they get older and if they've been banged up and concussed and, and had trauma, they need to get their blood work done and they need to know where their testosterone is. I just recently started testosterone replacement therapy at 46 and it's changed my life. I also recently last year did hyperbaric oxygen therapy. I had a TBI in my first deployment in Bosnia. I've had headaches and sleep issues for years. Hyperbaric oxygen therapy does not exist within the VA community. And if there is one in a VA hospital, it is only used for wound care. Yet it's one of the most beneficial things you can possibly do for head trauma and PTSD and anxiety and depression. And after doing 80 dives with the 22 Project down in Florida, a fantastic nonprofit, I can tell you 1,000%, it did 1,000% more than any pill I've ever gotten from any shrink at any VA. And I think if they start taking a more non-invasive and non-pill writing approach and take a more holistic and a more outside-of-the-box approach, I think they could be tremendously more effective. And, and it's just going back to jujitsu. What jujitsu does is it reteaches the veteran how to deal and manage stress. It reteaches the veteran how to manage and deal with their anxiety. If you're training and you've got a 200-pound guy on top of you and his entire mission, in a, in a, in a friendly way because your training partners, is trying to choke you or trying to put you into an arm bar, and you survive that as a new jiu-jitsu guy or gal, you take that home with you. That transfers over into your life. It transfers over into your, your relationship with your spouse and your kids. It transfers over into your confidence and how you are with your coworkers and your family and your friends. It gives you a whole new perspective on, holy shit, like I have this superpower. I'm, I'm 10 times more confident than I was and I'm managing my stress better and I'm managing anxiety better because I just did it in a real life, real world situation. So jujitsu has endless benefits and I think um, just like I have a strong belief that every police officer should be a blue belt in jujitsu, I have a strong belief that every veteran that spent any amount of time in the military should train jujitsu at least once or twice a week because the benefits are truly endless. You know, I've, I've had other veterans on the show, and that was the, most, the best damn answer I've for that question I've asked yet. Thank you. It really is. Wow. Also, no, no bullshit. That's the best answer I've had yet. Thank you. Well, thank you. I really appreciate that. What advice do you give young adults who are thinking about a career in the armed forces? Uh, <laughs> it may not be everyone's cup of tea, but my advice to young adults looking to get into the military is go get a gun and do some good for God and country. Right now, we are starving for good young men and women to serve in our armed forces, specifically in the special operations community and specifically Let's talk about special forces or Green Berets in the Army. There is such a shortage, and there are a few reasons for that shortage. One is we cannot get enough guys to pass a drug test coming out of high school. And then if we can get them to pass a drug test, some of them can't pass the basic ASVAB test. And then if we can get them to pass both of those, 
maybe we can't get them to pass a background check. But say we get that figured out and we get a bunch of waivers and the judge says, okay, instead of a year in jail, go do four years in the army. If we can't get them to do that, we can't get them to pass a PT test. We are starving. And, and I'm not just speaking specifically to the special operations community in the army. I'm speaking to just the, the military in general. Um, some branches are more demanding. Obviously, we know out of all the boot camps and basic trainings, Marine Corps boot camp is the hardest. It's 12 weeks. It's the most physically demanding, whereas the Air Force is probably the least demanding physically when it comes to basic training or boot camp. But that said, we still need people to defend this country. We still need people to be patriots. We still need people to believe in what our founding fathers set up. And, and, and what we're actually fighting for. Do I agree with all the wars that we've had? No. But do I agree with every guy or gal that's laid down their life or signed on the line to go fight for freedom? Absolutely. And we need more of them. It's very difficult right now to get young men and women to believe in wanting to fight for this country and wanting to defend this country. So to any young man or any young woman that is 18 years or older or 17 and mom and dad want to sign off on your waiver, Go down to a recruiter, get a gun, do some good for God and country, and I thank you. So I always like to ask one fun question. Is there any fun shows or any particular music that you're currently into? Um, yeah, so I took a little peek at your Instagram page, and I noticed a couple things on there that were not only of interest to me, but in the little bit of free time I do have, uh, especially having an 11-year-old stepdaughter. I'm pretty much consumed with, with her and my event. I, I would say that the Terminal List is the best thing I've seen on TV lately. Uh, that was really well done. Chris Pratt did a great job. He also played a SEAL in uh, Zero Dark Thirty and his co-actor on there who played Lieutenant Mike Murphy in Lone Survivor. I thought from a tactical perspective, they were spot on. Obviously, the advisors on the show were all former spec op guys. I, I loved just the way they cleared rooms. Everything from a tactical perspective I thought was as good as I've seen on any show. And then I also saw on your Instagram a picture of the movie, The Gray Man. Oh, uh, yes. And that was awesome. Was it a thousand percent super realistic? I don't know. <laughs> but I'm sitting down with my 11-year-old stepdaughter and we're watching the scene where he goes and he has to watch uh, Billy Bob Thornton's uh, niece. And she's like, oh, your name is six. He's like, yeah, 007 was taken. And he's protecting her. And then a guy breaks in the house and he fights him and kills him and all that. And my stepdaughter looks at me and says, is that what you do for a living? And I said, yes. <laughs> and she just thought that was the coolest thing. And I thought the movie was really well done. And again, from the knife fighting, which I'm, I'm really into, Filipino knife fighting. I thought the knife fighting was accurate. I thought the combatives were accurate, the tactics. And who just doesn't like a good thriller with a bunch of killing? So as we begin to wind down this interview, what's the best way for my listeners to follow your adventures online? Uh, you can hit me on uh, on Facebook, uh, Brent Magnuson. Or uh, right now, the main focus for me is rogerupevent.com. And that has links to all of my and all the speakers' social media. We have some fantastic and some very interesting um, and big name speakers on there. So all of their social media links are on there as well. We've got some cool 
videos and social media leading up to the event on there. So that's probably the best place to follow me. And then if anyone's interested in the book, uh, both the ebook and the paperback are on, uh, are on Amazon. Right. So I end my interviews with my favorite question. The question is this, if the entire planet was listening to this broadcast, what would be the one thing you want to say to the people of earth? Wow, man. I'm rarely speechless, but that's uh, go to rogerupevent.com and sign up for the event. All right. The book is Roger Up, the Mission Ready Blueprint to Crush the Morning on the Day and Become the Best Version of You, available on Amazon, Barnes & Nobles, or wherever books are sold. Brent, congratulations on your success. All my best for your future. Yeah, and thanks for having me on, man. You have a great platform and a great show, and it was a real pleasure to be on with you. I appreciate you saying that. And just like that, Duval Nation, we come to the end of Episode 88. I want to thank Brent for taking the time to speak with me. He is doing amazing things for veterans, and I want to wish him the best of luck on all his future endeavors. Be sure to check out his book. So this is episode 88. That means we are 12 episodes away from the magical 100th episode. And I already have the guest chosen for that episode. And believe me, folks, it's an incredible guest. I'm one of the most famous guests we've ever had on this show. Based on our release schedule, if we keep up with that, look for that episode around the second week of November. Have you had a chance to check out our store on TeePublic? We have everything from magnets, stickers, and mugs, plus we have a carefully curated collection of t-shirts put together by myself and Mrs. Duvall. That's right, we have great taste, folks. Be sure to go to our website, DerekDuvallShow.com. Look on the banner on the left that says Merch. Click that, and you'll be taken to our store on TeePublic. And as I say time and time again, TeePublic, thank you so much for being such a great partner with us. September is Suicide Prevention Month. As someone who has struggled with mental health in the past, I encourage everyone who might be going through a significant mental health crisis to reach out to a family member, a friend, a trusted doctor or religious leader, and have them help you get the immediate attention and help you require. You can also contact the 988 Suicide and Crisis Hotline. But please remember, folks, and this is very important, suicide is a permanent solution to, I promise you, a temporary problem. Before I sign off on this episode, I just got breaking news on my phone from Rolling Stone uh, that five minutes ago, legendary 90s rapper Coolio has sadly passed away at 59. Um, by pure coincidence, I've been playing his music a lot lately, and you know what? Damn, man, it really does hold up well. Um, man, that really sucks, man. My thoughts go to his family and also to friends of the show, Jaron and Maggie Clayton, as I know they were friends and collaborators with him, so... Going to listen to Fantastic Voyage and Gangster's Paradise tonight for sure. But, man, 59, that's just too too damn young, man. Too damn young. On behalf of the entire team here at the Derek Duvall Show, I want to say to each and every one of you listening, <laughs> go take a cold shower. After this interview, I spent three days taking cold showers, and it takes some getting used to, but you do buy into it, man. It really does get your day started. Nusta, God bless, and see you next time. Planet Earth. This has been a recording of The Derek Duvall Show, and we thank you for listening. Please go to our website, DerekDuvallShow.com, to explore past episodes and find links to purchase merchandise. Please subscribe to our social media channels on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Derek Duvall Show.